This is Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we explore human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Today, that includes the border of the United States of America, as uh, JJ and I, Seth there, attempt to explain what's going on. And uh, today, we're recording this at uh, 10 a.m. July 7th, and we'll be publishing it a couple days from now because things change fast. With uh, border policy and how the Trump administration is changing it and what judges say and all of that. So it's really hard to explain. I do want to say we're doing our best to talk about this. And that includes listing a lot of sources, trying to be as accurate as possible. I'm not going to claim that we have the final facts on this because the border is complicated. There's a lot of legal issues and laws and precedents that can relate to different pieces. So we'll give our explanation. We'll give our sources. And if you have any more context based on like the law or other relevant laws, feel free to share. But uh, that's what we're going to be doing today. So JJ, uh, what do you think about the border? Okay. Well, of the many things that I study, this is one of them. The border is is a complex thing because on one hand we have the actual physical border so we have you know the physical line that exists between territories then we have sort of this legal border which is the line that's drawn up that's recognized by two countries in this case the one we're primarily talking about is mexico and the united states that has a list of rules and regulations for how travel between um and over this border is meant to be done And then we have sort of this more vague border, which is sort of this border that exists in people's heads with this idea of uh, how there is a very firm line between one group of people and another group of people. So the border kind of exists within these different three realms, and then those three realms are often overlapping realms. And so the border is, is quite difficult. But I think for the most part, what we'll be talking about today primarily is the actual legal territorial definition of the border, which is that there is a physical line that has been agreed upon that is recognized internationally that is the defining line between two separate states. So the primary focus of this podcast is how the Trump administration recently began separating families at the border and and everything that surrounds that and related pieces to that. But that's kind of the nexus of where we're going. But to start with, as uh, anything in the current administration should start with, we're going to go but Obama. Save some of you the trouble. Sort of. It has been said, why didn't people complain about Obama's immigration policies as he was deporting massive numbers and so on. He did get criticism. He got criticism from some of the left and from immigration rights groups, and they were vocal about it. It did not, however, get a lot of mainstream coverage, in fairness. But there was criticism. Did the Obama administration interpret how to enforce in a way that really angered and upset a lot of people, such as saying, we're going to prioritize criminals and uh, other things? Yes, the Obama administration interpreted the law 
in multiple fa- facets. And uh, that wasn't to the letter of the law. And uh, while recognizing the border is complex, we can grant that. Did the Obama administration put children in camps? Yes, some. And they tried to do it on the down low. Did they detain families? Yes, until a a court order told them not to. But this isn't the same as what the Trump administration is doing, so we'll we'll get into more details. But uh, first, one of the things we need to explain is Obama was primarily placing unaccompanied children into camps. So uh, what are UACs, JJ? So an unaccompanied alien child Normally, you'll see it referred to, if you're reading any of the policy documents we've linked to you, as a UAC, is a child, so someone under the age of 18, who has no lawful immigration status in the United States. And that is a little bit difficult because how you end up with no lawful immigration status in the United States is that there's no parent or legal guardian in the U.S. who has citizenship or and possibly sometimes and, there's no parent or legal guardian in the United States who's available to provide the care and physical custody of a child. So for example, say that you are a 12-year-old who has traveled from Guatemala into Mexico and then into the United States where you are then picked up by a immigration authority. Now, you might have sort of a, a... how to say this, an informal family network, a godparent, maybe a former neighbor, a teacher, someone that your family views as like an aunt or an uncle, you know, in another state who is a U.S. resident, but because there's not actually a blood and legal tie that's recognized, so you're not someone who has a direct nuclear family member who is a, one, defined as your legal guardian, and then two, a U.S. citizen, then you are an unaccompanied alien child because you are alone. You don't have, you're not taken as an adult and you don't have an adult that can speak for you within the U.S. legal system. And that's a very complicated thing to be. It's a very hard thing to be a UAC. And as some of you are also aware, illegal alien is also a term that's used. And there are people who point out that the term alien is kind of, oh, charged and dehumanizing. True, but it's also the legal term. Yeah. And I think that that's that's sort of the difficulty. We've had this in other podcasts, too, between what the community itself and what service providers to that community have said that people want to be defined as or the terms that they want associated with them versus what's actually in, like, the legal statute that you and I would reference while doing research. So the Obama administration tried to figure out different ways to deal with border issues, The deportation numbers, which were really, really high, are notable, although they're not as high as they seem. Uh, Deportation is people who are already in the country that are sent out to their home countries. Whereas if somebody is returned within the border zone, it's not considered a deportation. And so the fact that the Obama administration took more people into custody and eventually got rid of them, made them deportations rather than returns. And so when looking at numbers, it's helpful to look at returns, removals, and deportations. But for about six weeks, officially, the Trump administration had done a policy where they separated families 
and they had reportedly done a test last year around El Paso of the policy. Not the first immigration policy it's been tested in around El Paso. So Obama, or I should say his administration, was being fairly punitive in 2014 because of increased people trying to cross the border. That said, the number of people who are apprehended for illegal entry isn't always that high. So like in April 2018, about 10% of all the people apprehended were people who were caught illegally versus people for other reasons such as asylum. So under the Obama administration, some of you have heard of the 1997 Flores settlement, which I'm going to refer to a few times, which uh, kept unaccompanied uh, alien children from being put in detention. But it was a little less clear in 2014 what would happen with children who were with the parents. So the Obama administration was keeping families detained with parents, and then that was challenged by immigration advocates and upheld in court. And uh, then the Obama administration couldn't do that anymore. And since that's the approach from the executive order with Donald Trump, there's questions about whether that will hold. But uh, the Ninth Circuit Court ruled that Flores settlement covered not just unaccompanied alien children, but accompanied ones as well. It also set the general standard that a government couldn't hold them in custody for more than 20 days. Now, there are those on the right and the left who have said that the Flores settlement from 1997 mandated 20 days. They are all wrong. It wasn't until a court ruling relating to Flores in 2014 that that happened. So now, having dipped our toes in Flores, we'll get into asylum. So, JJ, can you give us an overview of the international asylum law and uh, how asylum works? Well, yeah, and I do want to be very clear, though, before I go into that, that international asylum law and then how it works are two very different things. <laughs> this is it, It's a complicated, like, I mean, what, what is not, when we talk about sort of right of asylum, what is not complicated about this? So, and, and specifically what I want to tell people is that the resource that I've linked to you today is from the International Justice Resource Center. And I think that they do probably the best at breaking down all of the different legal protections, who is a refugee, freedom of movement. I think that they do a great sort of a breakdown of refugee status and case law, but they link to the actual law and case law and examples and news sources themselves. So I think it's just it's a great thing. Definitely something that you if you have any interest in this, you should play around with. Maybe maybe one important question to to answer is like why even have an international agreement on refugees and refugees being those who go through the UN system asylum when they come to our border but uh, why isn't it just something where some countries do it some countries don't why sign an international agreement so if you're someone who's really maybe into I I don't know LARPing or Dungeons and Dragons or just medieval history you know this but that this idea of refugeeism or sort of like the right to travel or asylum actually comes out of medieval England largely. And that was just so that it, if you were fleeing religious persecution or if you were, you know, say a, a deposed member of a royal family, you could transfer into another kingdom 
without worry that the kingdom you were transferring in would, would be attacked. In particular, you mostly, though, do see this with people seeking asylum within churches. You see the, like, you know, sort of hunchback and Notre dame moments of, uh, I claim... I claim asylum here. I, I claim protection. I claim protection of the church. I claim sanctuary where individuals could go within a church in order to sort of seek protection. And we see this continuing on. But when we're talking about modern asylum, we're talking about asylum that is a legal asylum that was largely defined after World War II. So we have in 1951, the United Nations Convention relating to the status of refugees, which is then modified in 1967 for the protocol relating to the status of refugees. But mostly what we have in terms of refugee law comes from 1951 from the Geneva Convention on the status of refugees. And so you can very much clearly see that this is a legal system that is firmly based in post-World War II thinking and and certainly comes out of essentially the holocaust and the fleeing of various members of persecuted groups specifically i mean most i think most known to be um people who identified as as being jewish or or thought to be jewish but also asylum seeking of certain christian groups roma uh, people with intellectual or physical disabilities, and then people who have been identified as enemies of the state, say for being com, you know, for political ideology, you know, communist, anarchist, uh, but then also people who just sort of maybe spoken out against the Nazi Party, and then also people who were not refugees, were not asylum seekers, but were in fact economic migrants because following World War II a number of states across Europe had mass economic downturn and sort of famine and, and issues. So you have migrants and refugees, you sort of have this mass human flow post-World War II. So the allies get together with this idea of how is it that we then are hand, uh, to handle what they actually define at that point, anyone persecuted because of his action for freedom who are unable to seek protection in their home country. So how, how do they handle that and so of course obviously the big players initially are the european union members uh like france the united kingdom and then of course the united states so it's literally just allies and so what then they define for for this situation is a refugee is someone who is outside his or her country of nationality or habitual residence so in the case say of maybe someone who was a hungarian jew leading up to World War II, due to pogroms, they might have actually been forced to leave their home country and go into a transitional country, and then during their time in the transitional country were prosecuted by the Nazis, who is unable or unwilling to return due to a well-founded fear of persecution based on their race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. And that well-founded fear of persecution, I think we've actually talked about this before, essentially means that this displaced person can prove that if they were to be returned to their country of nationality or to their country of residence, that violence would happen to them directly. So by them saying, look, I'm a Hungarian Jew, it's 1952, here are a number of newspaper reports of 
Hungarian Jews being violently discriminated against in this country, I can't return people saying okay. But it's important to remember within this that it's someone who is identified as being a member of that group. So this happens a lot in modern asylum cases now where people are seeking political asylum on basis of sexuality. So someone who, say, is identifies as homosexual or maybe, uh, yeah, I would say homosexual is the, is the cases that I've done the most with. And they identify as such, but they're not outed within their community. They can apply for asylum, but they may actually not be granted it if they're not outed within their community because then the idea is that there's not as much fear there. Whereas someone who is perceived to be homosexual, even if they are not, is actually then considered to be in more danger by the international court. So you can see that this is really, really messy. Really, really messy. And this gets messier over time because when we start to move out of, you know, the 1950s and into the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and then especially into the 90s, countries in largely South America and Africa that were experiencing large-scale displacement as a result of armed conflict or as a result of civil war, as a result of genocide or ethnic cleansing, didn't really have the needs of their populations met under the initial cause or, or sort of the initial rules of who is a refugee. And that largely then was tied back to this idea of habitual res residency because and in a lot of these contexts, particularly if you're looking at maybe sort of mass uh, social movements within particular armed conflicts within maybe say Sudan, you have people who maybe have never naturally had a place of habitual residents or people who were sort of constant refugees, people who didn't necessarily have a home nationality or maybe home papers that they could could cling to. And that is largely then because of exclusion. So let's say that you have a well-founded fear, but if you've ever committed a crime against peace, a war crime or a crime against humanity, if you've committed a non-serious political crime outside of the country, or if you've been guilty of acts contrary to the purposes and principles of the United Nations, you cannot be eligible for asylum. And again, in the Sudan case, we saw this a lot. I think, Seth, and I, we might have talked about this in our Child Soldiers podcast. It's We've done so many, it's hard to remember now. But what pops up then is this idea of people who were child soldiers. Or people who maybe they weren't necessarily children. They were 18, 19, you know, but certainly still young. And they had maybe engaged in serving for a military force that participated in genocidal actions. Well, then they're not actually eligible for asylum and post-reconstruction. And so this makes court cases sort of very, very complicated. Because as you and I have talked about, someone who maybe was a soldier from the ages of 14 to the ages of 20, at, at what point is he no longer a child soldier and becomes just a, just a soldier? Certainly there's a legal point, but is there a psychological point? And the idea then is that refugees, people who are identified as refugees, have particular rights. They have a right to movement, freedom, security, uh, access to education, justice, employment. Uh, essentially, that then they have the right to all of the freedoms that individuals within the state have. Now, this is really different from state to state. So, for example, you have you know a lot of refugees in Lebanon. Lebanon, you know, a lot of Palestinians uh, have been resettled into Lebanon, uh, but there's a lot of 
restrictions on the availability of those refugees to to work within Lebanon to, to earn money. We see a lot of refugees or people who actually have what the international community would claim would be a right to refugee status uh, as, a, as North Koreans who enter into China, but who are declared not to be asylum seekers by the Chinese government. So the, it's a it's a very sort of difficult thing in that the procedures for claiming asylum differ from state to state. They should be the same under the UN, but in actuality, they are not. They right. they very much are not. And right. and so that makes things very difficult. Also, I think increasingly after nine eleven. We saw a lot of people who had what they considered to be legitimate claims for asylum were the, the clause of being engaged in terrorism or being related to terrorism-related groups. So in one of the things I've linked to you, there's the matter of S-K, which was a court case that happened in 2006. And that was when a board, an immigration board declared that a Burmese national – Burmese national who claimed asylum that she couldn't, um, she she or he uh, couldn't actually claim asylum because at one point she had given $700 to the Chin National Front, which at the time was considered a, a tier three terrorist organization in Burma. And because the Chin National Front fought against the Burmese government, which the U.S. opposed, they they weren't considered there. Uh, eventually it was it was opposed and eventually refugees had supported the organizations could enter the US as resettled refugees, but this took a number of years and an exceptional amount of money uh, for this individual to eventually be considered uh, a valid asylum seeker because at, at one point they had given money to support a group that the US had declared a terrorist organization. And if you know your U.S. history, you know, sometimes, you know, our allies become terrorists and vice versa. You know, it, it's the world's complicated. So to go back to the uh, treaties, the mm -hmm. 51 convention and the 67 optional protocol. Yes. The 67 was essentially an amendment that encapsulated most of the 51 convention. What's really important is the U.S. didn't sign the first one, but signed the second one, second which one. then put most of the requirements on the United States. Yeah. And this is a treaty, so it is legally binding. However, treaties, the way they work with international law is you sign it, and then you have a responsibility as a country to create national laws relating to the international law you've committed to, which the U.S. has done. There's some leeway with asylum policies in how a country determines them, hence uh, the disparate ways that countries do that. But uh, countries can decide, okay, how many do we want to take in? What are our criteria, etc. And there's a legitimate issue of a lot of people have come to the U.S. border and then people start clogging the system because we have to give them due process, which because it's part of the law, and it's not just part of the law for for, for uh, Americans. It's you're supposed to have due process in the United States. And then to give them adequate hearings. So, for example, a good example of this is that since the 1990s, there was an amendment added in, which was the idea that individuals who had a claim 
of sexual persecution. So uh, mass domestic violence in their home country, systematic oppression of a gender or sexual minority could be included in some countries as a legitimate category for asylum claims. So in particular, there there was another court case that was related to the rights of, of Pakistani women to be considered a any any Pakistani woman could claim political asylum because they were considered to be at risk of gender-based violence in, in the 1990s. Because of that, technically, any Pakistani woman applying should have been able to be, you know, go up into the court for political asylum. However, only some countries, and again, it's the countries that tend to have sort of more, uh, shall we say, sexual violence or gender-based violence legislation for their home citizens to, to participate. So certainly, you know, no one was applying to Cuba for that. And that leads then to asylum shopping, which is a term I hate, but it's when asylum seekers will attempt to apply for asylum in a number of states after transitioning in other states because of this fear that I've I've applied for asylum in one country, but they may not grant it to me. And if they do so, I might get returned. Uh, a very common event is this stuff with, with Libya. I, I might get returned to Libya and I am absolutely terrified of doing that. So I am while applying, say, for asylum in France, I will also apply for asylum in Britain. There are laws trying to stop this and prevent this, but it still happens. So one of the things that's happened is... Uh, for that reason. Yeah, different it, states will apply and manage their asylum laws in different ways. Is uh, Sessions reversed some um, Obama administration policies on what our criteria is relating to gangs and domestic violence. And I don't necessarily take issue with that only because the government can decide what the constraints are and because we have a backlog in the system. But one thing I do take issue with, and this actually is a big point is how well the United States has telegraphed policy change. Mm -hmm. And I find the way we've done it to be completely unacceptable and, and, not not just wrong, but villainous. Yeah. Like when you've, it's one thing to change the policy and arg and su subtly argue it's not a deterrent, but it is, and all that other stuff, or or that we're not. But people don't start yesterday and then end up in the United States tomorrow. It usually takes weeks, might take longer. So in order to give people an expectation of we're going to change it and we want to give you a chance to adapt so we don't ha so we don't have to separate you from your children it's good to give people a month or two notice and make sure communicating this to embassies and making it very loud rather than we are already separating children from parents at the border and don't do it if you don't want that to happen as people are already in process as they're already paying smugglers where they might not have a chance to know what the new policy is and there's been multiple interviews that make it clear that people have crossed without knowing that that was going to happen and i also think too the idea and what what i think is perhaps maybe not 
adequately explain when we're going through all of these protocols, but is, I think, if you decide to maybe look at the UNHCR handbook for the protection of internally, inter internally displaced people, IDPs, is that in the world, there are 68.5 million displaced people. 40 million of them are internally displaced people, so within their country of origin. 25.4 million of those are labeled as refugees, and then 3.1 million are labeled asylum seekers. That is a lot of people, the majority of which are coming from South Sudan, Afghanistan, or Syria. So you have a lot of people who are, are trying to travel and trying to find a place to go. And the UNHCR only has 11,000 staff members. When you look at the 25.4 million refugee number, half of our, are under the age of 18. So if you have one person displaced every two seconds on average, and you have roughly 11,000 people meant to track, manage, treat, handle all of these people, it is going to be a long process. Anecdotally, I have heard of people who are seeking asylum claims, say in Turkey, and there is one office you can go to to claim asylum in physically present with all of your documents, and people will start lining up there at midnight because they, the, the UNHCR office, because they are the only place you can declare asylum, can only see roughly 15 people a day before just time runs out from nine to five. Applying for asylum is not a small process. It's not like Michael Scott from the office yelling, like I declare bankruptcy. It is, it is a long process. You have to provide a lot of documentation. That's why generally people, people with means who are claiming asylum will almost always have a lawyer or someone that they will, that they will try to have to work as an intermediary because it is just, it is so difficult. It is an exceptionally long process. And it's not necessarily, it's a process that assess that can take days, but it can also take years. And so when things change suddenly, imagine you're someone who's been sort of flying under the radar in, in the U.S., but you've been planning on applying, applying for asylum. But in order to do that, you need to travel from the state that you are currently in to another state. So you need a certain amount of money together. You need a car. You need someone who speaks English to travel with you. You need to be able to leave work for a set period of time. You need to not need stay in a in a transit country too long. Yeah, you need to not stay in transit country too long. You need, you know, a number of papers. You need just just the amount of time and labor and money that that takes is is quite high. And then to go to a center and be told, okay, well, you might have to be here for for almost a year, waiting in a line where you're not making any money and you're just spending money every day to, to try and claim asylum that may or may not work. You can understand that why people remain sort of undeclared asylum seekers. And just looking at the UNHCR website right now, there is there are 10 different situations that they are labeling as an emergency where there are mass refugee flows for a number of reasons. From Yemen, which no one is talking about, to Iraq, to Nigeria, to the DR Congo, like there's a lot going on right now that just increases the numbers of people seeking refugees, refugee status. And that makes things very, very difficult. Well, very, very difficult. Refugees, as we've said in other podcasts, are more vulnerable. And so they're vulnerable to traffickers, not just coming into a country, but at all, all parts of it. But they're also vulnerable to recruitment into terrorist networks because if you're just trying to survive, then you 
you're going to do what you have to do in some cases. And refugee flows in general, when they're, they're because of destabilization, and destabilization is not good for international economics when we have supply chains going all over the place. Some of the countries that are really in play with the United States, you know, not Mexico, migration from Mexico is net negative, which means there's more people returning than coming. Most people are coming from the Northern Triangle, which is, JJ? The Northern Triangle, is it is it rude of me just to be like, not a good place? <laughs> there's some good people, so, though. I mean, no, there's good people and there's good things there. Coffee. Guatemala. Yeah, that kind of helps with the thing. So the Northern Triangle is the countries of Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, which, as I'm sure you will shock to find, sort of form a triangle on a map. And what's happening there is that that is an area where there have been mass how, – how to phrase this in the best way? There's been mass violence there, period. And it comes from a mix of things. It comes from high levels of inequality in that particular region. It comes from a variety of government policies within those three countries that have led to a terrifyingly amount, uh, a terrifying amount of poverty. And in fact, a, a very large gap between rich and poor which has all then in turn led to increases in specifically uh, the drug trade, human trafficking, and just organized crime via the cartels overall. And so as a result of that, there has been mass flows of people out of the or away from the Northern Triangle trying to get to, to, to safety, if you will. And... This is also a region that is considered to be one of the deadliest in the world. The The violent deaths there are counted higher than some war zones. You know, one of the, the details I found were just that in 2011, that per 100,000 people, there were 39 homicides in Guatemala, 69 in El Salvador, and 92 in Honduras. So that is literally numbers that are higher than the death rate of Iraq during U.S. occupation. So you have people essentially living in a war, in a war zone that isn't recognized, that feel that they are not getting protection from their government, they are not getting protection from cartels, they are not getting protection from smaller local gangs, they have incredible poverty, there is very little advancement to be made economically, so why wouldn't you you leave for, for the sake of safety? And the thing that I have linked in particular, I think everyone should give a read to, it's from the UNODC, which is the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, a threat assessment. And while it talks about sort of South America and the Caribbean broadly, it has a specific section devoted to the Northern Triangle. And I think that if you're someone who gets into a lot of fights, maybe, at the you know, Thanksgiving table. I mean, I know it's summer, but like around like the 4th of July cookout, that's like, well, people should come when you have the uncle who says, well, people should come legally. And you say, well, it's not that easy. And they say, well, why are they coming here? They're coming to take drugs, you know, to take our jobs. And it says, no, they're, they're fleeing mass violence from, from drugs and trafficking. And this report actually includes sort of direct, some direct ethnographer work where it interviews particular people who have said, you know, uh, they've had children kidnapped 
And so in order to save their other children from being sold perhaps into sex trafficking or labor trafficking or from being killed by the cartels that they've they've fled. And so when you see these undocumented minors, you know, and you say, well, what, why would you put your 10-year-old on a train to travel into the U.S. alone? And it's because for a lot of people, even knowing that these kids could end up in a camp in the U.S. is is better than what they feel is an assured end for them, which is to be... Uh, how should I say, killed by a cartel. Now, if you also look historically at the Northern Triangle, the United States has interfered with the sovereignty of all three countries. So it's a bit disingenuous to just say it's entirely their problem. Yeah. Which doesn't mean that U.S. tax dollars need to go to solving the world's problems or to solve all the problems that we in some way have contributed to. But it means we're not completely innocent where we can just say, well, that's them. And, uh, you know, we should just I don't know what people are thinking. But like if if people don't come here from Guatemala and they're afraid for their life, you know, did we just accept that maybe they'll just die in their home country? You know, I don't know. But it's not simple and it's not simple for people who are fleeing conflict. And that's one reason why it's good to have international approaches to say, how do we, as the, quote, developed nations, help people? How do we stabilize regions so that destabilization doesn't continue and go to other countries and so on? It's one of the reasons to give a certain amount of aid to help countries stabilize so that we're not having a mass emigration flow and civil wars and so on and so forth. So somebody gets here and they're apprehended. So it could be at a port of entry, which a port of entry is an official border checkpoint. Airports also count as that. But if it's somebody apprehends them, then a border agent can ask if you have a fear of persecution or a person could just request asylum. If they do, an asylum official will interview you in a credible fear interview, which is the initial interview to see if you have a, a credible fear narrative that works. Now, we're, we're not so naive to think that nobody's ever coached, although I don't have a problem with people being coached. It doesn't mean that everyone has good motives. It doesn't mean that people aren't in some sense trying to get through our system. But it also doesn't mean that lots of people don't have valid as asylum claims or, or just fear for their life, regardless of whether they should get into our country or not. It doesn't mean that their life circumstances aren't legitimate. And in terms of how we've been doing our credible fear interviews, about three in four people make it past the initial interview, which is to say, like over 20% of people do not pass that interview. So just because you say, I want asylum, doesn't mean you're going to get past the first step. And I've heard many people who don't seem to get that. So just because you ask for it doesn't mean you are going to be let in to wait for your judicial hearing, which is the next major step. It's not the only other step. Now, what, what has happened because of the backlog, and this is a legitimate problem, 
is people have said, okay, you're going to have your official court hearing a year from now. And because we can't keep holding them in detention if they haven't done, if they're, if they aren't like a threat and if we perceive them as a threat, such as a criminal history or whatever, it's possible to keep holding them. But otherwise, we have to release them by the law, U.S. law. And so many people have to wait, can't can't work, as J.J. mentioned, legally. And then... Which opens them up to more trafficking possibilities. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, based one stat is that like 60% of people showed up to hear their decision and the rest didn't appear in front of the judge. Now, that does not mean everyone planned to not show up in front of the judge. Maybe they moved. Maybe they can't get there because of where they live now because of lack of money. Maybe they forgot. Now, none of those are necessarily true excuses when you're talking about legally being in a country. But it's also not saying that they had necessarily had nefarious motives. Nevertheless, it's not a good system when we have a system and then it doesn't get followed and then we still don't know where people are at and then they're not here above board. And the term that people on the right came up for this process is catch and release. Well, I will say, uh, well, one, Catch and Release is a fantastic movie that has Kevin Smith in it. Doesn't get enough credit. But also, it is pretty it's a it, again god everything you say just could be like it's complicated so catch and release it's been used for over a decade as i said but what it is is that it prevents the federal government and any law really from keeping every single immigrant apprehended without papers at the u.s mexico border from being processed and then deported so how catch and release works is people are caught they are registered and then they're released and in a short period of time that's how it's supposed to work so say in in particular um vox did a really nice piece on how this worked in the george w bush administration so border patrol agents would catch routinely immigrants crossing the U.S.-Mexico border from Central America or, or non-Mexican countries. They, these border agents would then open up an official deportation case in immigration court. So what they then had was, you know, so they had an individual's name, they had their place of origin, they had all the members of their family, they took fingerprints, they had photos, you know, where they were living currently they have or where they were heading to, all of that information. But then they would release the immigrant to show up at their next court date. The idea being that then these people could return to their community. You get a lawyer, you get a plan, you you can then come back. A lot of times people came back, sometimes they didn't. But then in the second term of George W. Bush's administration, they decided to sort of quote unquote end catch and release. And so it started keeping all immigrants caught at the border in detention centers and detention. And then this caused problems because you had families being split up. You had individuals who then felt that they weren't getting appropriate access to their to legal counsel or, or to legal and financial opportunities. And this then became an issue again under president Obama, because there was the idea uh, DHS 
did instruct agents not to prioritize arrest and detention of immigrants unless they had criminal records or were like in the process of crossing the border. They, so this is catch and release applies as well as, you know, say an individual gets arrested, uh, pulled over at a stop sign. And it's found that he's been in the country for, for 15 years, quote unquote, illegally. So these this catch and release then was meant to apply to to people already living in, in the U.S. So, again, you get a court date, you come, you make your case. There are restrictions on that. Well, Trump, President Trump's first week in office, the, the administration gets rid of those restrictions and tried to mandate that all immigrants caught crossing into the U.S. be kept in detention center while their cases were resolved. But it couldn't control that, actually. And it turns out, you know, it, it couldn't actually, the administration actually couldn't mandate that. So now we have sort of this weird thing and where you have in particular areas, no catch and release happening. In some areas, catch and release happening. It's, it's a very sort of complicated time. And especially because increasingly as children, families, and asylum seekers have, have popped into the country, you know, say a family apprehended together, a family picked up together, that's very difficult to manage under a non sort of catch and release policy. Not to mention we only have so much detention space as well as so many spaces where we can put children. Yes. And so that's why the Trump administration is building additional camps, talking about putting people on military bases because we only have so many places to put people in a country that has more people per capita in some sort of prison than anywhere in the world. And and so what one of the things I've linked is actually a press statement on immigration that was from the White House uh, that is on why catch and release, this current administration says the catch and release isn't appropriate. And in particular, the, the catch and release only increases under, under this administration's thought is that it only increases the issue, only increases the number of individuals that are in the country legally. And, and that, yeah, it, it's not good policy. It's just part of a broken system that doesn't fix itself, where Congress doesn't hire more immigration judges by funding them, even though the Obama administration asked for it. Now, the uh, Trump administration, or I should say the, the Trump campaign, I remember reading a document where it said, we need to hire more immigration judges. But then Donald Trump himself recently has said, no, that's unacceptable. We shouldn't have to do that. It's hard to do immigration reform because there's potential political cost and because you're, you're also talking about how to deal with a lot of people who aren't official citizens. And so when people can't vote, there, there's less reason for Congress to do something about it, sadly. So one, one segue as we uh, get into some more details is uh, the lost children who briefly people thought were the children that were separated from their parents. But uh, we don't want to get really into it, but uh, the the lost children were former unaccompanied alien children, and they were people that the Trump administration tried to reach by phone and were not able to reach. They were not actually lost. They were just people didn't answer the phone. They thought they knew where most of them were, they probably uh -huh. do, but just because people didn't answer the phone doesn't mean they're lost. 
and they have nothing to do with uh, what the Trump administration is doing, except perhaps the fact that maybe more people might not want to answer the phone because of Trumpian rhetoric. All right, moving into the more recent issue. So one stat had between October 1st, 2017 and May 31st, 2018, at least 2,700 children have been split from their parents at the border. Almost 2,000 were separated between April 18th and May 31st. So at that point, about an average of 45 children were being taken from their parents each day. There have been some reports that Border Patrol agents lied to as they were separating children from their parents and why. And then there's also, earlier on, you had a Homeland Security Secretary, Kirsten Nielsen, who said, no, this is misreporting you are not breaking the law by seeking asylum at a port of entry. For those seeking asylum at ports of entry, we have continued the policy from previous administrations will only separate if the child is in danger. There is no custodial relationship between family members or if the adult has broken a law. We do not have a policy of separating families at the border, period. She lied on multiple points there. As later was realized... So some people on the right who are a little more nuanced, like Ben Shapiro, I listened to one of his shows that was recommended to me, and while he said some balanced things, he also said, hey, here's the facts. So he mentioned that Trump administration is mostly just enforcing the law, that if you cross the border illegally, you're subject to prosecution. He mentioned the 20 days of Flores, which I already mentioned was not Flores, and as I'm going to get into that, you know, not only is that not a fact, but just crossing the border being illegal and that being the law is not a fact either. So just claiming facts doesn't mean they're facts, nor does it mean they're Uh the law. And uh, with Donald Trump, where he vacillates between enforcing the law and then complaining about the law, we have bad laws that need changed, but now I'm just enforcing the law. You can't have it both ways. I don't know. JJ, I just get pissed off when listening to people say multiple people Here's what the Obama administration did. You don't want the Trump administration to do that. And what what is actually happening is the Trump administration is following the law. And that is just complete BS. Yeah, and I think it's also too... Uh, refugee, I, and I don't know how, how maybe to explain this in the appropriate way to, to people who don't work in this field or people who aren't related to it, but refugee flows have even changed so much within the last year, let alone within the past five years, Right. The amount of people, it seems, every single year who are seeking asylum goes up because the type of conflict every single month changes and goes up. We have moved from sort of conflicts where you have people going, you have insurgents going into areas with sort of machetes and, you know, some guns to mass chemical attacks on citizens. So the number of people you're seeing increasingly seeking asylum or seeking protection is is only going to increase. And then you add that in with the increasing number of people who are seeking asylum because they've lost their their home country, they've lost their ability to survive due to environmental changes. You know, we're seeing refugee flows of people from Kiribati because they're they're an island nation and they're going underwater. Those people aren't going to have anywhere to live. They can't return to their country because there is no there's going to be no country to return to. So what do you tell people? You know, who say, well, we didn't have the sort of refugee flow five years ago. Well, five years ago, 
the drought hadn't started. Five years ago, there hadn't been chemical attacks. Five years ago, there hadn't been tanks rolling into particular areas that people are now fleeing. So that has changed things. And increasingly in the U.S. context, the opioid crisis and the demand for drugs in the U.S. has only increased violence within the Golden Triangle, which has only then increased flows of people seeking safety. And so I don't think it's actually fair in this case to say, well, the Obama administration, even to say the Bush administration, the Clinton administration did the following actions because it's been so varied. Not to mention the continued evolution of smuggling networks to meet the need, the increased oh, yeah. ability of transnational criminal organizations like drug cartels to get in the business, etc. So... After laying all that groundwork, what are the policy changes of the Trump administration relating <laughs> to this immediate issue? Policy change one, prosecute all crossers, including those who apply for asylum. Mm -hmm. So the decision to charge everyone crossing the border with illegal entry and to charge asylum seekers in criminal court rather than waiting to see if they qualify for asylum are both decisions the Trump administration has made. The first step is not to figure out whether you should be granted asylum. The first step is now to deal with the misdemeanor for illegal entry. So you are now detained by U.S. Marshals and sent to a federal jail to await trial. This is different. This is, this is not detention. This is criminal proceedings. Those are uh -huh. different. People were previously put in detention. Now, it's said because you can't go with a child to federal jail, he is taken from you. I'll get more into that later. Yeah, I want to make it clear really quickly. I know we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but I think people have this idea, maybe who've, who've never seen a detention center or aren't familiar with it, that it's kind of like going to a summer camp. And that is not the case at all. And because of the quasi-legal status, uh, people are sometimes held in indefinite detention. There have been numbers of abuses that have happened so it's uh, not the best system. All right. But relating to the, to the law, I'm going to read the first part of 8 U.S. Code 1325, Improper Entry by Alien. It's hard not to think outer space there, but hey. I know. I always, I, the, my urge to make the thumbnail for this, a scene from Mars Attacks, is overwhelming. <laughs> It's the only thing that could possibly bring joy to my life right now. Yeah, now I have an image of an alien standing at our border. But anyway, sorry, people. Yeah, but if we don't okay. throw in some lightheartedness, we'll be too serious. We'll just die. All right. And I quote from this code. A, improper time or place, avoidance of examination or inspection, misrepresentation, and concealment of facts. Any alien who, one, enters or attempts... To enter the United States at any time or place other than as de designated by immigration officers, or two, eludes examination or inspection by immigration officers, or three, attempts to enter or obtains entry to the United States by willfully false or misleading representation 
or the willful concealment of mat- of a material fact shall for the first commission of such offense be fined under title 18 or imprisoned not more than 6 months or both or for a subsequent commission of any such offense be fined un- under title 18 or imprisoned not more than 2 years or both Imp- uh, b improper time or place civil penalties any alien who is apprehended while entering or attempting to enter the United States in a time or place other than as designated by immigration officers shall be subject to a civil penalty of at least $50 and not more than 250 for each such entry or twice the amount specified in paragraph 1 in the case of an alien who has been previously subject to a civil penalty under this subsection. Notice the word civil there. Did you catch the word civil, JJ? I did catch the word civil. This is a civil misdemeanor not a crime, not not a criminal offense, went the first time, legally. Now, they've done it that after you've been, I forget if it's return or removed, that if you come back again, it can be a felony. But the first time is a civil penalty. So we've been using the word criminal. I mean, if you want to call everyone who's committed a civil crime, a criminal, well, if you've ever had a speeding ticket, wouldn't you be a criminal under that type of looking be. at it? But that's the law. You can agree or disagree with it, just like Trump can, and just like uh, people who are immigration rights groups. But if we're going to keep quoting the law, well, that's the law. That's but that's not under. all of the law, because that seems pretty cut and dried. If you cross it, you you are subject to being fined or imprisoned. We'll get to that a bit later. Policy change two, separating children. Your child is now placed under the supervision of the Department of Health and Human Services, which sends them to Burry Housing, which has to be licensed. This could be foster care or it could be one of the detention centers, but uh, it can't be in the same exact place as parents and uh, this can take time and this is where we get to the Flores settlement which was a judicial settlement to a lawsuit it deals with uh, perceived mistreatment of unaccompanied minors in the 80s Uh, Jenny Lissette Flores a 15 year old from El Salvador she fled her country to find an aunt who was living in the United States and she was detained at the border they sometimes had to share sleeping quarters and bathrooms with unrelated adult men and women. She was stripped search. And she was told she can only be released by her parents, not her aunt. So in the ACL's lawsuit, they said they had a constitutional right to be released to responsible adults. I'm going to read a few parts of that since it's been so quoted without people actually reading it. So the main part was... Uh, Section 12, 512, Procedures and Temporary Placement Following Arrest. This is, like all laws, pretty dry, but not that long. And I quote, Whenever the INS, I'll stop there, it was the Immigration and Naturalization Services back then, now now, now they call a lot of that ICE. So whenever the INS takes a minor into custody, it shall expeditiously process the minor and shall provide the minor with a notice of rights, including the right to a bond redetermination hearing if applicable. Stop. Are we doing that? I don't know. 
but that's the law. I'll continue. Following arrest, the INS showed minors in facilities that are safe and sanitary and that are consistent with the INS's concern for the particular vulnerability of minors. Facilities will provide access to toilets and sinks, drinking water and food as appropriate, medical assistance if the minor is in need of emergency services, adequate temperature control and ventilation, adequate supervision to protect minors from others, and contact with family members who are arrested with a minor. Are we doing all of that? The INS, no one can, yeah. sorry, it just occurred to me that I'm like shrugging and going like, eh, <laughs> which no one can see because this is a podcast. Yeah. Well, and while I have my skepticism, I'm again going to, if we're going to have people quoting the law, well, this is what the conditions of detention for minors are supposed mm-hmm. to be. I haven't seen a full evaluation of whether we are or aren't doing all of these things, but I am skeptical. Continue. The INS will segregate unaccompanied minors from unrelated adults. That's the key part. Continue. Where such segregation is not immediately possible, an unaccompanied minor will not be detained with an unrelated adult for more than 24 hours. If there's no one to whom the INS may release the minor pursuant to paragraph 14, and no appropriate license program is immediately available for placement pursuant to paragraph 19, the minor may be placed in an INS detention facility or other INS contracted facility, having separate accommodations for minors, or a state or county juvenile detention facility. However, minors shall be separated from delinquent offenders. Every effort must be taken to ensure that the safety and well-being of the minors detained in these facilities are satisfactorily provided for by staff. The INS will transfer a minor from a placement under this paragraph to a placement under paragraph 19 within three days if the minor is apprehended in the INS district in which a license program is located and has base available. So how about all that, JJ? No, I think one of the things that happens a lot that has sort of complicated this even more is that while there has been, you know, so there's been a slowdown because there's supposed to be more attention paid at every step of the way, right, of how this work is supposed to be done, there hasn't been a scale up actually of people working in these centers or sort of working in border control. So you would think that the funding should be increased or you think that at the very least staffing should be increased, but that hasn't happened. And that's, that to me is always very surprising. Just that there, the administration seems to want to push for a ramp up and how things are done yet has not managed to do that in a practical way that I think most people who've had a job like doing any sort of logistics would have done. So now everyone is being prosecuted. That's the policy. And children who are separated are then designated as unaccompanied alien children and put one of many places And so they're put in the custody of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is part of the Department of Health and Human Services. So one big difference is this is a policy for everybody. Yes, under the Obama administration, there are children who are separated from their parents, but not everybody, especially not asylum applicants. Yeah, and... More more than just the not everybody, I would say it's also not 
an intentional ramp up of asylum seekers from a particular place. Because we did see sort of in, in the catch and release into the Obama administration that there was a focus on individuals from a number of countries as opposed to individuals crossing the U.S.-Mexico border, which now it seems to be pretty exclusively focused on. Now, maybe that is because of travel bans and whatnot, other things that the Trump administration has done to maybe curtail what they view other populations coming into the U.S., but it strikes me as very interesting that it, it seems to be very focused on a particular group of, of people. Now, there are also those who said, well, we, we separate in the U.S., we separate criminals from their children. Well, I'll go back to this is a civil offense. And I'll point you to Seth Abramson's uh, Twitter feed. Not so common for, for a civil offense and not even for all criminal offenses. Because, first of all, not everyone goes to jail. <laughs> so, basically to say that everybody who's arrested gets separated from their children and that happens in the U.S.? No, it does not. Mm -mm. And there's always the option in the U.S. to continue even if you have been separated from your children, at, which generally involves you fighting for rights to see your children continuously, is that in a lot of cases, children and youth services are still responsible for like arranging visits with your children while you're in prison and sort of constant monitoring of your children. All right, policy change three. Asylees must apply at a port of entry. That is a policy change. Almost impossible. Cough, cough. Now we'll get into the challenges <laughs> of applying at a port of entry in the next policy I'm sorry, change. I can no, that's stop fine. Myself. No. But there's so many people that have quoted that. It's not the law. The U.S. could change the law that people could apply at port of entries, but that is not the law. And I'm going to read the law to make that Ooh. really clear. All right. I'm going to read two different codes. Now, I'm not saying this is all potential U.S. code and judicial rulings that could apply to this. If there's one takeaway... If you're sure about this, you're a lot more sure than I am because when I look at it, I see a lot of laws that say different things and that make it a lot more complicated. And our asylum law pretty clearly overrules the, the blanket misdemeanor approach. So, 8 U.S. Code 1158, Asylum. A. Authority to apply for asylum. 1. In general. Any alien who is physically present in the United States or who arrives in the United States, whether or not at a designated port of arrival, and including an alien who is brought to the United States after having been interdicted in international United States waters, irrespective of such alien status, may apply for asylum in accordance with this section or where applicable under uh, 1225B of this title. What is 1225? Well, I have that one too. <laughs> Eight U.S. Code. Answers. And I'm only reading part of them. 8 U.S. Code 1225. Inspection by immigration officers. Expedited removal of inadmissible arriving aliens. Referral for hearing. 1. Aliens treated as applicants for admission. An alien present in the United States who has not been admitted or who arrives in the United States whether or not at a designated port of arrival, and including an alien who was brought to the United States after having been interdicted 
in international or United States waters shall be deemed for purposes of this chapter an applicant for admission. So A, screening. In general, if an immigration officer determines that an alien, other than an alien described in paragraph F, who is arriving in the United States or described in Clause 3 is inadmissible under Section 8, or 1182A6C or 1182A7 of this title, the officer shall order the alien removed from the United States without further hearing or review unless the alien indicates either an intention to apply for asylum under Section 1158 of this title or a fear of persecution. If an immigration officer determines that an alien other than an alien described in paragraph F, who is arriving in the United States or described in Clause 3 and is inadmissible under Section 1182A6C or 1182A7 of this title, and the alien indicates either an intention to apply for asylum under Section 1158 of this title or fear of persecution, the officer shall refer the alien for an interview by an asylum officer under paragraphs, subparagraph B. Exciting stuff. So to, to interpret the last part, I wanted to read it all because I was reading it. So it's saying, if they're arriving in the United States, but they're inadmissible under Section 1182, which is misrepresentation, fraud. So if they're inadmissible under misrepresentation, or they have no valid documents, because that's a requirement, but they intend to apply for asylum, they can still apply for asylum. That's the law. So one of my friends was told, well, if somebody doesn't have their papers it's th and they're applying for asylum, it's the same as applying illegally, or it's the same as being illegal. No, it's not. Not according to U.S. law. Now, whether you can apply for asylum and whether your claim is a strong claim and whether you can actually get asylum, that's another matter. Because if you're going to go to court, you have to be able to prove your claim. And if you don't have anything to support your claim, if you don't have anything to support that these are your children, if you don't have any documents whatsoever, that can be more difficult. So to differentiate what it takes to apply for asylum and what it takes to get asylum. So like if you go in and you commit fraud and then you're in the U.S. for a while and then you're caught and you say, well, I want asylum, as I've been told by an asylum lawyer, your odds of getting it because of the way you went about it are, are harder. Mm -hmm. But what it takes to initially apply for it is very low under U.S. law. And so... Asylum law in the U.S. overrules the general misdemeanor part. Now, that, that's a bit nebulous in the sense of, can the Trump administration bring about a prosecution? Well, they're using that slight grayness, but asylum law should overrule that. Policy change four, slowing down case management at the port of entry, which is what uh, JJ alluded to. Mm-hmm. Also, if you're denied at a port of entry, like there's multiple ways where port of entries could be more strict. And so people decided we won't go to them. But uh, the way that 
they are slowing down case management and not letting people enter in order to detain them by saying, hey, we're going to only process what we can handle. That also appears to be illegal, although I don't have the specific law that uh, we're supposed to take people in and then determine what's going on with their asylum claim. So slowing it down to the degree where we won't talk to you, we won't let you cross until we have the capacity, that's a policy change from the Obama administration. Now, where, again, I can get pissed off is the migrant caravan that was so demonized by uh, President Trump and some Fox News shows. They were planning to cross at the port of entry, and that was where they initially sought to cross was at the port of entry. So they were trying to do it right, and that didn't matter to our president. So doing it right isn't what matters. And really, according to U.S. law, crossing between ports of entry is also doing it legally. And also bear in mind, too, folks, and the reason why we're talking about this specifically is is not just the risk that it holds people who who to, to maybe be trafficked, but if you have an individual who has been trafficked into the country, and so they've been brought in for trafficking purposes illegally, but they've somehow gained freedom, if they've been in the country for years, they have an asylum claim, but that's not necessarily an asylum claim that's based on, you know, that they can make at a port of entry. If on a, if they're unable to join to get asylum based on the fact that they are a survivor, which as we've talked about in previous podcasts is, is really hard to do. So now, reportedly, there is a plan being drafted by the Department of Justice that would bar from getting asylum if they come between ports of entry and are prosecuted for illegal entry. And as I've pretty much mentioned, that would be violating U.S. law, as I've just read it. At least I can make a strong case for that. Mm -hmm. The final version of the regulation has not been released, so we'll see what that ends up being. And then what it also ends up being in practice as well. Because again, you can, you can want constant sort of arrest and holding of individuals, but at a certain point, if you don't have the funding for it or if you don't have the support for it, you don't have the staffing, you don't have the capability of actually placing people somewhere, that's going to change things as well. Okay, then the parents, after having served time in jail, parents try to reunite with their kids, but there is no real process to make that happen. It's also difficult because parents who are in detention, when they try to reach out to their kids, they're calling multiple agencies, they might be put on hold, and they only have so much time to make phone calls while in a detention center. So that's been difficult. And so you have immigration advocates who are often the people trying to fit the uh, parents and children together. Part of this is just the way that the Trump administration has implemented all of this, where there are limited resources, where it doesn't appear to be rolled out very well. 
um, you know, one of many things is uh, when it was announced by Homeland Security that they were going to use four military bases. Somebody asked Mattis about it, and he's like, "I don't know. That you know, go go ask DHS about it." Now, I don't expect General Mattis to know everything that's going on in the Department of Defense, but it's kind of a curious answer to not have any idea. There's just multiple cases where the Trump administration doesn't seem to uh, properly communicate and plan the rollout of some of their policies. I, that's what I was going to say, is that it seems like there seems to be, within this administration, a fundamental issue of staffing and then communications between staffing. Also, people seem to switch in and out of positions real quick. And there's only so much funding for some of these things. And mm-hmm. uh, if if you're going to try to harden the border, it's where I think it put, makes a lot more sense to hire people and give them roles than it does to put money into a structure on the border that'll just make it harder for people to get in, especially when we have 700 miles of fence. Well, there's going to be a wall, Seth. Okay, I'm done. Yeah. (laughs) I'm done. I apologize. I'm sorry. Guys, we're trying to really give a fair and balanced thing here. It's just that this is, I think, a policy that we fundamentally disagree with. Because especially here, too, anytime you have sort of now we're having mass movement of children, right? without uh, any sort of, it seems like any sort of really well-honed, well-done tracking system, kids are going to end up lost. And the problem is when kids end up lost, kids tend to end up either being hurt, exploited, trafficked, or some mix thereof. And that makes us really nervous. Understandably, I think. But I we're, we're going to see... I am I am actually okay with saying unilaterally we are going to see trafficking victims made out of out of these current programs. Because we saw human trafficking cases come out of the previous programs that existed and it seemed like every time that programs got ramped up in their severity we saw an increase of trafficking and so it does it would not shock me then if we would see the same thing reflected here. So under pressure uh, Donald Trump eventually did sign an executive order that allowed families to be kept together in immigration detention while parents were prosecuted, uh, which then makes it look more like the Obama administration policy that didn't hold up in court. Mm-hmm. It's not clear even now what that will mean, but it's also interesting that Donald Trump had said that this is something that, you know, the Congress has to solve, that it's the Democrats thing, that it's not our policy, but then he does an executive order and changes his policy himself. Which might be an issue of communication, maybe, Mm -hmm. or... Uh, It looks like 500 migrant kids have been reunited with their parents. There's still over a thousand that are still in the system. A judge ruled that has recently ruled that the Trump administration had 30 days with which to reunite parents and children. That is not done, and the Trump administration has now asked for more time. We'll see what happens. There has also been some reported instances from a few sources that asylum seekers have been asked to sign a voluntary removal order 
in order to be reunited with their children. I have not seen that document. That does uh-huh. not mean it does not exist. I I can believe or that, that it does. does. Exist, but I could believe be that it does. Be fair. Yeah. But if so, it would certainly look like coercion using children as hostages, which would be pretty insidious. And does go against our US agreements for non-refoulement, which is to say that we we do not return people who have made a claim of refugee status until their refugee status has been adjudicated in a court of law, we don't return them to the country that they claim would cause harm to them. So that's a violation for us. And that's, I think, one of the initial reasons why the law under Obama, well, the declaration under Obama went up um, in front of the court because of this idea of what, how, how does this go for or against current agreements that we've, mm-hmm. as, as a country, have signed on to. So on June 23rd, the Trump administration announced their plan for reuniting the over 2,000 families, that they will reunite children with their parents in order to deport them both, which, again, kind of fits the uh, coercion theory. Mm -hmm. But that's what they announced. But it's also rough because then if... You're a parent fighting for asylum. You may not be able to see your children for months or more, you know, over a year, potentially. Or you can waive your own rights and the rights of your child and agree to be reunited as you are deported. So even if there isn't a form, it certainly seems like children are being used as leverage. Well, and this has happened in in other cases related to people who did have either refugee or asylum claims who were accused of committing a certain crime where there 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 have been legal cases where then law enforcement has said, well, you know, if you return to your home country, we'll drop this charge of, say, robbery against you. And so it, it would not, again, to fair to use that, it, it would not shock me then if this document did exist. And certainly if it does, we'll add it into... I think the liner mm-hmm. notes of this episode. So on Monday, July 2nd, a federal judge ruled that DHS has violated its own policies, violated the law, by refusing to release most asylum seekers from immigration detention, even if they are likely to win their asylum case. So according to the law, you can't just keep asylum seekers in indefinite detention while their cases are being figure it out or at least you're not supposed to be able to legally because again what is legally permissible and what actually happens is very different so the main point is that dhs cannot use blanket detention decisions according to dhs policy which is really the issue we can't Mm -hmm. use a zero tolerance policy as implemented is not legal so feeling frustrated our our president on July 5th, tweeted, quote, Congress must pass smart, fast, and reasonable immigration laws now. Law enforcement at the border is doing a great job, but the laws they are forced to work with are insane. When people, with or without children, enter our country, they must be told to leave without our country being forced to endure a long and costly trial. Tell the people out, and they must leave, just as they would if they were standing on your front lawn, Hiring thousands of judges does not work and is not acceptable. Only country in the world that does this. All caps. Fix our insane immigration laws now. 
To make it very clear, our president is demonizing asylees. He's not demonizing, in, in this context, people who are caught crossing illegally. He is demonizing everybody who has an asylum claim. There's no nuance mm-hmm. in, the, in this set of tweets. And that includes individuals who had claims in before this particular law was passed. I, I've never seen anything from Donald Trump that shows he has anything other than disdain for uh, asylees and refugees mm-hmm. to the entire system, with a few exceptions for political purposes, such as uh, letting certain Christians in and so on. But that's the big issue here is we do have to find ways to deal with the asylum system. Contrary to what he's saying, we too need more immigration judges to expedite this. And uh, I'm not personally against finding ways to streamline the whole process, but demonizing asylees is abhorrent. And anyone who does that, people like JJ and I are going to oppose. And if that means that we're going to echo the voice of people that are condemning the Trump administration for this. We will until they learn some sort of nuance to actually recognize that asylees are human beings, mm-hmm. that a lot of them have valid reasons to come to the border, whether or not we should let them all in or not. So to finish on a few trafficking related things, uh, so there well, we'll have to do a podcast on the tip report. There's a 2018. But uh, what was one of the things in that tip report, JJ? Well, the U.S. got yelled at a little bit uh, for our sort of policy related to visas and sort of the mass uh, holding of children. So specifically, if you look at the Trafficking in Persons report from 2008, which you can do the whole thing. And, and PDF, again, we've linked that to you. You know that we love our tip report. We'll probably do a whole podcast, I think, probably eventually on the tip report itself. But one of the things that pops up within that is this discussion of the institution of children away from their parents. That gets written about, but not necessarily from the perspective of this is something that the U.S. is engaging in. Instead, it's a condemnation of children being institutionalized away from their parents in transportation moments. Specifically, if you look at page uh, 22 of the report, which is 30 in the PDF for child institutionalization and human trafficking, they talk about how the international community agrees that a family caregiving setting or an alternative solution that's appropriate and culturally sensitive is the best for children and is the best way to prevent human trafficking of children in sort of these contexts where children might be held. And specifically, they say the government-run facilities are, are terrible, that traffickers will operate around the facility without issue, that child finders are known to have traveled to these facilities in the past. Uh, In particular, they talk about Nepal, Cambodia, and Haiti, where this has been documented and known to be true. And so they go on at at quite a length. And in fact, cite the UN guidelines for the alternative care of children, which discusses the institutionalization of children, is definitely something that can lead to 
child trafficking. And then again, if you actually look within the section that's provided on Haiti, which is on page 211 of the report, Haiti's on a two-tier watch list, which means that they're they're at risk of being dropped to a tier three, which is where government sanctions can come into play. And specifically says under prevention that the institutionalization of children has led to more trafficking within Haiti. So a more direct notification on there, which I think is just so surprising to a lot of people, but like really was surprising to people because the thought was then since the U S is now doing exactly what the United States tip report, which is a government generated document said not to do that. This is probably something that came out of that. That was written pre the Trump administration deciding to do it. And it echoes what some other people have said about uh, trauma that, you know, there's trauma from sometimes being in the country, there's trauma from the journey, and then trauma being separated from parents at the U.S. border. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that trauma then increases even to people's available, you know, a likelihood of being trafficked down the line. And so it's a very, it's, it's a rough spot for people to be in. Now, there is supposedly identification of traffickers that has been expressed as a concern and, and uh, a valid reason for the Trump administration to do this. If they are, have identified traffickers, great. And uh, I would hope that if there are any children who were trafficked and noticed as they were crossing the border that they were well taken care of, can hope. Mm-hmm. But again, to put a counter to the whole zero tolerance part, we have two visas that are for people who have been victims of, of serious crime or trafficking, which are the UNT visas. And it's partially why just having a prosecution view of the border is asinine. It's, victim identification is important. And understanding if somebody is a victim and potentially giving them a way to get to the U.S. and be taken care of because they're a victim, especially if we supposedly care about trafficking. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've talked about them before, but just uh, to remind people about the UNT visas, could you explain them, JJ? Yeah, so there's two different visas for victims of human trafficking. There's the T visa and the U visa. So only certain, and this is because you're victims of a crime. So these are specifically reserved for for victims or what we would prefer to call them survivors and while t and u visas include the crime of human trafficking they are different so t visa applicants are people who had to have been trafficked into the u.s and you must be present in the u.s as a result of human trafficking the difference then with a u visa is that you may have visited the u.s on your own or like been smuggled into the U S or entered the U S on your own by choice and then been subjected to human trafficking. So in a T visa, you have to have been brought to the U S because of force, fraud or coercion, because you were recruited, you were tricked, you were trafficked from the beginning. You don't, you basically just have to show, uh, that you were brought into the U S for human trafficking purposes. So even if you had agreed to come to the U S 
say to work as a domestic helper and then when you arrived in the US you were trafficked into the sex trafficking industry that counts for for a T visa because then you, you were brought into the country for the purposes of trafficking even if you didn't know it if you came into the country to be a domestic helper and you expected to get paid and then upon arrival into the country not only were you a domestic helper but you were held in bondage that also qualifies under the T visa because you didn't know that you were going to be subjected to being trafficking you can't you can't consent to be in slavery now under a U visa you would have already been in the country at the time that your trafficking occurred and um you also have to show that the trafficking that occurred uh, was actually trafficking. So pretty similar uh, with the exception of origin stories. And then under the T and U visas, in both cases, you have to cooperate with law enforcement insofar as they need you to. There is an exemption. Certain T visa applicants under certain types of trafficking don't have to cooperate, but for the most part, T and U visa people are expected to cooperate, but it seems like the burden is much higher on U visa applicants to cooperate. They're in fact, they have to get a certificate of helpfulness from a policing agency. So from like the FBI, the CIA, you know, their local police saying that they had, had tried to basically prosecute their trafficker. And the difference is on, there's then a difference in what people have to demonstrate they'll be denied so under a u visa you have to prove that because of this trafficking you've been pretty heavily abused that you've you've suffered something whether it's now you have you know you have physical or mental scars you know you kind of have to show that you really really were harmed by trafficking which to me is kind of ridiculous because of course you were but you kind of have you have to prove that whereas T visa applicants, what they have to prove is that them leaving the U.S. would be what would actually be harmful to them. So while they are expected to show, just like under the U visa, that they've been harmed by trafficking, the, the burden is more on that they be harmed by returning to their country of, of origin more than they were necessarily by the trafficking itself. So one of the things that pops up is, you know, so say I've been trafficked from El Salvador, but I was trafficked by a cartel. Return to El Salvador could result in the cartel killing me, even if I didn't cooperate with authorities in the U.S. So that issue. What I think is really important, though, to remind people is that both T and U visas are limited. So there's only 10,000 U visas allowed to be given a year, and there's only 5,000 T visas to be given a year. Now the U visas are just for you. The T visa can apply to you and like your family. So for example, if, if I have a spouse and like children, the T visa can spread out. The U visa is just for me, it's a singular one. But there's only 10,000 U visas and 5,000 T visas to be given a year. And with a pure number of people who are trafficked into and then across the US every year, there is, whew, whew. There are so many more people who who need to be able to access those visas per year that don't end up getting access to them. And understandably, then the people who tend to get these visas tend to get, um, how should I say this? They, they tend to be people who the U.S. would already view as, like, allies, or they tend to mostly go to, like, sex trafficking cases, women, that sort of thing. 
Now, every year for for the last seven years, actually, so now I'm guessing since they haven't done the 2018 fiscal year, so I guess since 2010, every year they've hit the limit of 10,000 U visas, but they have not hit the limit of T visas. And that to me is very surprising. I think it's probably because T visas require a little bit more uh, insofar as that you have family members involved and that you have to show that you would be harmed returning to your home country. But I, one of the things in particular that I found from one legal aid network is that the current U visa waiting list has almost 24,000 people on it. And that there, and those are people who have been accepted, uh, but they're on the waiting list for deferred action, that there are 140,000 petitions pending for people waiting to receive deferred action to be placed on the waiting list. So that means that there can be years of, of wait time for individuals. Years and years and years. And more than that year of wait time, it can be time when they're expected to communicate with law enforcement while they're trying to get family members maybe out of country, into country. It's, it's all very, very detailed. And I don't think people realize that there's the, the limits. I think the, the limiting is what really gets people. Well, and what is, else? yeah. So in what is now our longest podcast to date, there's even <laughs> more we could have covered. There's, I know. I, I, I cut out a lot of what I was going to talk about at the end because I realized this is already going to be really long. And also I wanted it to be mostly an explainer. Uh, JJ and I do have our biases, but. Oh, yeah. And there's probably some things you could disagree with and uh, maybe even some things you could counter, and that's fine. But I hope that was helpful. And uh, that's what we know about the current situation. And uh, we, we are believers in not just human rights, but the asylum system, that we should at least help some people, that we should let some people in on uh, for asylum claims and UNT visas, that that's good for the world, that that's good for America, that it's just good security policy even. Like it's something you want in your toolbox. Like, like when we're fighting extremists, when we're looking at security issues abroad, having blanket policies are not particularly helpful. They make it harder to identify the most, most serious threats because we're spread out. They send a bad message to the rest of the world. They can empower bad regimes by giving them more justification. Like it, having overly hardline approaches when we are a country that at least some degree talks about democracy and freedom and human rights, it doesn't make a safer world to do what the Trump administration is now. JJ and I believe that. Yeah. I well and it certainly doesn't it doesn't help victims of trafficking, which this administration has said is is a aim of theirs, which I think is a, is another thing as well. But just adding more border security, 
if we just did that, I wouldn't have an issue just conceptually to say, okay, uh-huh. let's add some troops at the border. Fine. Let's hire more border control officers. Fine. So to be clear, we're not defending the status quo, but we we take issue with the approach as it is now, as it's become. As I think is, if you work in this field, I think is natural. I can't imagine, you uh, know, just yeah. not coming to that opinion, I guess. I would, I would be very surprised. Well, and if you prosecute all adults, some of them are bound to be trafficking victims. And so you are continuing the process by which we jail trafficking victims. Mm-hmm. Which is why, again, identification is important. Yeah. All right. Well, if you made it through all of that, uh, thanks for listening. We will be back in coming weeks with Shorter Podcast. We promise. (laughs) Bye, guys. Bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.